This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Zana Marsh, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 398 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Will Wheaton. He starred in the popular 1983 film Stand By Me, based on a short story by Stephen King, and also played Wesley Crusher on the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. Since then, he's had a wide-ranging career as a writer, actor, internet personality, and all-around celebrity geek, including a recurring role as a fictionalized version of himself on the TV show The Big Bang Theory. And we'll be speaking with him today about several of his recent projects, which include narrating a new audiobook version of Andy Weir's The Martian and hosting The Ready Room, a new after-show discussing Star Trek Picard. And now here's our interview with Will Wheaton. All right, so we're here with Will Wheaton. Welcome to the show. Hello. Okay, so you recently recorded a new audiobook of Andy Weir's The Martian. So how'd that come about? Um, I knew Andy. Um, I was a fan of the book, so I, I read the book when it came out. I think I got it in the first week. I may even have gotten it in the first couple of days that it was released. I loved it. Uh, I reached out to Andy, and I asked him if he would come be a player on my show Tabletop, uh, which he did. And... Uh, a couple of months ago, Audible got in touch and said they're doing a version of The Martian, uh, a new version of The Martian, and wanted me to be the narrator. And I, I was actually really surprised. I thought, because there's a version of it that already exists, and it's quite good. Um, and uh, they said that there's an issue with rights and intellectual property and whatever, and they have an opportunity to do a version of it. Would I be interested in doing that version? And I was thrilled. I was so excited because I'm a huge fan of the book. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the movie. And it just feels like this incredible opportunity to do something that's kind of prestigious. Uh, so I said yes immediately. And uh, and then we recorded it, and I'm real proud of how it turned out. So what was it like meeting Andy when he came in for Tabletop? It was really fun. Um, he is exactly what I expected. You know, he's a big old nerd, <laughs> um, real enthusiastic, real easy to talk to. Uh, and uh, a scary good at uh, at tabletop games. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to watch that episode. Did he? Did he win? I don't remember who won that episode. Mm. Um, so then, was recording The Martian was it kind of um, pretty typical for your experience recording audiobooks, or was it different in any way? Yeah, I um, for the audiobooks that I do. Um, I insist on working with a director and working at a studio that I've been partners with for years, uh, creative partners. And not every publisher wants to do that. Not every publisher wants to pay for a director. Not every publisher wants to pay the fee to use the studio. And uh, that's absolutely their prerogative. I just won't work with them. Um, my director, her name is Gabrielle DeCure. She and I have done incredible work together. 
and uh, we have won awards together. We've created best-selling uh, audiobooks together, and it's very much a collaboration. Uh, I do a lot of preparation, and obviously it's my voice uh, doing all of the work, but she keeps me focused. She finds places like where I'm starting to get kind of fatigued because sitting down and performing nonstop for six hours is tiring. Uh, when I start to reach these points where I might be losing some of my energy or losing a little bit of my focus, she will bring me back in the way an engineer would not. Uh, so one of the things that is uh, particular to the way I do audiobooks is that relationship and that creative process. There are other narrators who are very comfortable working alone, just recording in a booth at home. There are other narrators who are very comfortable working with uh, just an engineer and not being directed. Uh, but I have found that being directed takes my performance from something that is uh, uh, competent to something that is really memorable and pretty special. You know, I record a lot of stuff for this podcast, uh, like the intros and everything, and usually I have to do four or five takes just to get a decent, and I sort of cut and paste them all together just to get something that sounds okay. And I've always wondered just with a, a long audiobook, do you do it all? Do you do multiple takes of the book or do you just, if you make a mistake, you just go back and redo that sentence or? Every now and then there's a section that I might feel like I'm not getting it and I will read it a couple of different times. Uh, Sometimes if I feel like a section of dialogue has gotten muddy, if the characters have lost their distinction, I'll ask to do that again. Um, I have real mild dyslexia, so it is not uncommon for me to skip a word, and Gabrielle will point out that I've skipped a word, and I'll go back and do it again. Um, but I, I work for five to six hours at a time, and that's all I can do uh, with a one-hour break for lunch. Um, it is... It is exhausting. Uh, it's a it's a constant performance, um, and uh, and it's it's it is challenging to use only my voice to tell a story instead of having access to the rest of my tools that I use as an actor. I can't move. I can't look. I can't change my expression. It's all in the voice, um, and I work uh, I work really hard to to do that to the best of my ability. So are there any, any moments that stick out from you from when you were performing your way through The Martian that, that stand out in your mind? About a year ago, I did, uh, I did a project for Cory Doctorow. And in that project, one of the chapters I, I, I performed, I had to read the number pi to like a couple of hundred digits. And that was really hard and really challenging. And if I messed up, I had to go back and completely start over and do it all again. Nothing I have done since then hmm. comes close to that level of, of uh, memorability and, uh, and significance. So I cannot remember anything that happened on the Martian that gets close to that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my, my overwhelming memory of the Martian is that it was really smooth and very easy and, and really pleasurable to, to do. Uh, as I said, I love the story so much that just telling it was really fun. And then also like, you know, there's a the thing that happens, right? All of us, all of us who consume entertainment, 
uh, we go to the movies or we watch a TV show and we think, man, I wish I could be that guy. I wish I could do that. And in this case, I got the opportunity and had the privilege of being these characters who I think are really cool and pretending to be Mark Watney and pretending to be all of the, the people trying to save him and pretending to be his crew. And that was really, really satisfying. Um, uh, and really just, it was really fun. And, and I feel like it just made the experience just, I don't know, that much more memorable. Do you feel like your interpretation of the character was different or the same as uh, the movie or the, the previous audiobook? I don't know because I avoided them both to be uh, absolutely certain that I did not subconsciously uh, in- incorporate any uh, any other actors' choices. I wanted the work to be entirely mine, based entirely on the on the book. It's, it looks like from uh, this email I got, it looks like there's some bonus material in this audiobook that wasn't in in any previous version. Yeah, there's. So the uh, at the end of the so the this this audio version contains the entire text of the original book, but then there are also um, these wonderful uh, uh, things that that Andy created for this that are things Mark wrote before he left Earth to go to Mars, and uh, a few scenes that happened after Mark came back to Earth after he's been up back after he survived actually for a really long time and it was an incredible privilege the the actor and performer who gets to bring those brand new pieces to life yeah that's really cool i mean you mentioned cory doctorow and i came across this quote um when um i guess he posted your story dead trees give no shelter on boing boing and uh, you mm-hmm. said that you describe yourself as someone who who is a writer in large part because Cory Doctorow supported me and gave me guidance when I was just starting out. I was just wondering what sort of uh, support and guidance did he give you? So if we go back to around 2002 or 2003, uh, I was still a fledgling blogger. I had been doing that for three or four years, and I was working very hard to carve out a new life for myself. Um, I never wanted to be an actor. It was not my passion. It was a thing my parents made me do. Um, I'm good at it, but it's not what I love to do. It's not what gets me out of bed every morning. Uh, what I love to do is write. And being a writer is, uh, is how I hope to spend the rest of my adult life. So I was writing a blog. I was working on uh, a memoir, which became my first book, Just a Geek. And I asked Corey if he would read it and give me notes because I had never written anything like that before. How and did he you said know yes. him at that time? I knew Corey because I had uh, done some activist uh, e- events with the Electronic Frontier Foundation where Corey was working. Um, so we had done a couple of things uh, uh, to draw attention to copyright abuses and uh, to to sort of push back against the DMCA and uh, to ensure that people's civil rights were protected online the same way they are protected offline. 
So uh, I knew him well enough, and I had read Down and Out of the Magic Kingdom, and I had been reading him as a blogger for years, uh, that I felt like he was a person I could talk to who had experience, uh, who would also just give it to me straight. And he did. He emailed me back, and he was like, I think you have some good ideas, but the form of this is actually pretty bad. Um, let me give you some examples. And he showed me, he quoted a thing that I wrote and he said, all you're doing here is telling you're not showing. Let me show you how to show this. And he rewrote a couple of sentences and pulled them out into paragraphs to show me how to show instead of tell. And then he used some examples from his own writing, uh, to, uh, to like, inspire me and 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 help me on on my my path and if he had not done that uh i don't think i ever would have had the confidence and i don't think that i would have had the guidance that i needed to start in 2004 becoming the writer i am today so for people who aren't familiar with your fiction career just kind of how did your fiction career develop from 2004 to the present I was writing narrative nonfiction uh, kind of memoir pieces. I wrote a lot in my 20s about being a young father. In my 30s, I wrote a lot about having teenagers. I wrote a lot about sort of struggling to make the transition from child actor to just an adult, not even like an adult who was also an actor, but just an adult who was not completely fucked up. And... Um, I, I told those stories and when I wrote and told those stories, I was doing my best impression of narrative nonfiction writers I, I enjoyed. And those were people like, uh, uh, Gene Shepard and David Sedaris. And, uh, I met a lot of fiction writers and asked them where they got their ideas. And they said, well, we just took them from real life. So I never forgot about that. Uh, and I started telling stories and writing stories that were about things that had happened to me in my life that were about big issues that I have dealt with, issues of loss and childhood abuse and things like that. And I started turning that into fiction. And I've self-published for years very successfully and very happily. It has allowed me to release things without DRM. It's allowed me to release things internationally on day one. It's It's been really great. And last year, an agent approached me and said, I've followed your career. I have all your books. I think you're a terrific writer. I would love to represent you and see if we can get you into some trade publishing meetings and, and get one of your books published, you know, at an upmarket publisher. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm writing a novel right now. I was working on a, a semi-autobiographical coming of age story set in 1983. And I said, when I finish this book, uh, I'll send you the manuscript and you let me know what you think. And I sent it to her and she was like, I love this. I think it's a great story. I think that we can find an editor who will help you get it across the finish line. And, uh, and this will be the, the start of a beautiful relationship. Uh, so that's, that's where I am. I, you know, I've, I've published a bunch of books. I've self-published a lot of work. I have written a couple million words uh, in, in the last almost 20 years. Um, but I feel like my career as a writer is just starting and it's exciting. So, yeah, so this is your upcoming book is called uh, All We Ever Wanted Was Everything. And you said it's semi-autobiographical. Yeah. Can you say what the semi-autobiographical aspects of it are? The primary character is a kid who is uh, struggling to just be a normal kid. And uh, his he has um, 
a father who is completely uninterested in him and uh, a really overbearing stage mother um, who is pushing him to be an actor. Um, and I took a lot of the experiences that I had as a kid on auditions um, and put them into uh, his story. I took a lot of the experiences I had just as a kid in my neighborhood with my other friends, and I put them all into the, into the narrative. The whole narrative is fiction, uh, and, and the biggest parts of the story are fiction. Um, I've thought that I might, I will likely play it coy when it comes out and not talk about what's fiction and what's actual, uh, because that will encourage people to dig for, you know, their own answers. Um, but, uh, uh, it was really cathartic to write it. It was really fun to revisit the things that I loved about being a kid. Um, and it was, uh, was challenging and uh and ultimately kind of healing to write about the things that I didn't like about being a kid. And the protagonist is a, a young teenager or so? Yeah, his name is Liam and he is uh 12 years old. Um he's uh he's he's uh he's just about to turn 13 uh in the in the narrative. So did you include uh some your geeky interests like what sorts of uh books and movies and things you were into at that age? Yeah, Liam loves Dungeons and Dragons as much as I do. Um, he loves science fiction. He's a he's he's a he's a proto nerd, uh, and and so are his friends. And uh, and and I I took a lot of uh, inspiration from actual events in my life with my actual friends to uh, to bring that part of the story uh, to life. Just as I was listening to interviews with you, I was kind of jotting down names of science fiction authors you mentioned. So the ones I have here are Isaac Asimov, Larry Niven, Frank Herbert, William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, and R.A. Salvatore. Is that a pretty good list of your kind of formative influences? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the sci-fi writers, I think of Bob Salvatore as a fantasy writer, but the, a lot of the sci-fi writers, you know, they wrote hard science fiction. And I loved that because it felt like alternative reality. It felt like a world that could exist instead of a fantasy world. The thing that, so I love Star Wars and I love Star Trek, but I've always felt that Star Wars is fantasy because the force is magic and Star Wars is source is science and, and Star Trek is science fiction because it is, it's based on, on a, on a science. And I always loved that. Um, it was a librarian when I was in third or fourth grade who identified for me that I was a science fiction fan. I went into the library and was trying to find a book. They didn't have whatever the book was that I wanted. And she said, I'm going to help you find a book. What do you, you know, what, what sorts of movies and TV shows do you like? And I said, well, I love Star Wars and the black hole. And I really, really loved uh, Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers and Star Trek. And she took me to the science fiction section and she gave me a book, uh, a, a young adult book called Z for Zachariah. Um, that uh, Robert C. O'Brien wrote. And just as weird coincidence would have it, Robert C. O'Brien also wrote Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, which was adapted into the first voiceover job I ever did called The Secret of Nim. And I read that book and I loved it. And uh, from that day, all I really wanted to read was science fiction. And I've read a fair amount of literature because um, I'm a writer and I feel like I need to so that I can be uh, educated. Um, but science fiction is, is my, my first and strongest love. Yeah. I love the, the, the secret of Nim and Mrs. Frisbee and the rats of Nim, both the, the book and the cartoon. I love both of those, but I was kind of curious. I mean, as you were growing up as sort of this, this actor child star, did you have a lot of time to read science fiction or did you kind of have to cram it in, in, in odd moments when you could? 
there was a rule in my house that as long as I was in bed by 9 p.m., I could stay awake as long as I wanted to if I was reading. So I would stay up for hours and read. I would read until midnight. Um, I've always been a night owl. And I would, that was what I did every night. I would just read until I couldn't keep my eyes open. Um, I, I had lots of time on the set, uh, when I wasn't, uh, in school. So the law is that we have to go to school for three hours out of the day. And then we work, uh, the rest of the time for a total of 10 hours. Those are the rules for minors. And, uh, it was not uncommon for me to go in in the morning and go to school for three hours and then have a couple of hours of doing nothing before they filmed us. And in that time, we didn't have handheld video games. We didn't have cell phones. Um, uh, I didn't even have a Walkman. Um, I had books and I would sit in the dressing room with my books and I would just read. I would read until they made me stop reading to go to work. I mean, some of your stories that I read, um, like Dead Trees, Give No Shelter, and uh, The Day After, are, are very much horror fiction. Do you uh, did you grow up yeah. reading a lot of horror fiction as well? I did. Um, I was. Uh, I, I loved Stephen King, um, and when I was cast in Stand by Me, um, it sort of gave me permission that I didn't need, but felt like I needed to go to the go to the library and start checking out all of his books. And by, uh, by, by just by coincidence or by, by fate, um, Night Shift as the first book of his that I read. And it has a couple of sci-fi kind of stories in it. Skeleton Crew has a great one called The Jaunt. And I loved them. And I loved them that they were science fiction. And I loved them that they were short science fiction uh, uh, with clear horror um, uh, overtones and, um, my secret as a writer is I just do my impression of the, of the writers I love when I'm writing stories. So when I write, when I write supernatural horror, I'm doing my very best to channel Joe Hill and Stephen King. Did you ever get resistance for, for loving fantasy and science fiction, uh, growing up? Not that I remember. Um, I spent a lot of my childhood with my great aunt who encouraged every interest I ever had. Um, she was amazing and she gave me, she gave me love and affection and encouragement and, uh, uh, really, uh, like just thought it was great that I was a reader. She and my grandmother, uh, uh lived together when I was really little and they taught me how to read at and I was so young that I knew how to read before I went to school. Uh, they taught me basic. Uh, I could write my name. I could do my numbers. And I could read simple books all before I was maybe six years old. Um, and uh, I think she knew how much I loved it. And she, uh, one of the things I really miss about her was that she really encouraged me to do the things I love. I mean, how about now as an adult and you're writing this fiction, what sort of response do you get from, from readers in terms of uh, fan mail and stuff like that? You know, for the most part, for the most part, it's really positive. People tell me that they love it. People, um, you know, people tell me that it's not what they expected. Um, uh, especially with Dead Trees Give No Shelter, um, I hear from a lot of people like they didn't think that I was going to tell that kind of story. Um, and for the listeners, it's a story about a man who 
returns to his hometown for the first time in a very long time so that he can uncover the truth about his younger brother's death when they were children. And he gets a lot more than he was asking for. I was seeing that you're also into choose your own adventure books and you'll uh, do readings at libraries and things. And I was just curious if you have ever yeah. read Space Vampire, which is my favorite choose your own adventure book. <laughs> you know, I I don't think I have. Um, choose your own adventures were great. Uh, I, 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 gosh, I've, I have read so many of them, but I don't think I've read that one. Um, when I turned 40, um, my friends gave me the first 20 Choose Your Own Adventures uh, uh, and the first 20 uh, TSR Endless Quest books. And um, I have, since I got those, I have kind of limited my Choose Your Own Adventure, uh, uh, Choose Your Own Story uh, kind of uh, reading to those 40 books um, because they are the ones that I read when I was a little boy. They're the ones that I remember. Right, well, I, I would love to write one someday. I definitely recommend. I think you should increase it to forty-one because space. I never miss a chance to okay. recommend space vampire. It's so good. I, I, is, I appreciate that. I'll I'll look for it next time I'm at the bookstore. Yeah, and the, the thing is that you never know whether the vampire is a good guy or a bad guy, and because it dif it differs depending on the path. It's it's so it's so mind bending. That's great. I love that. Um, and so actually, my my all time favorite book series is Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber. And I know you did the uh, the audio. Oh, I did. Yeah, for for book six through ten, I was just wondering if uh, what that experience was like. It was exhausting. Uh, those books are wordy and they're long. Um, they are not the best. In the Amber series, uh, a couple of them were were a real slog, um, but they have their fans, and the fans love them. Those books are absolutely beloved. By uh, by a fan base that I would say is is as passionate as like your average Star Trek fan is, and uh, it was really important to me that I honor that and that I tell that story in a way that was uh, really um, meaningful and uh, and enjoyable for for the people who were going to uh, who were going to hear it. Um, but it was long. That was for it took us like five weeks to do all those books. Yeah, if, if I'm being honest, uh, Night of Shadows and Prince of Chaos, I don't think are that good. But I just love that world so much. Uh, I've just read those books over and over. And actually, you know, I had um, Roger Zelazny had narrated audiobooks, um, you know, himself. And, and I used to just listen to those every night before I went to bed. I just I just love that, that story so much. That's really cool. I have heard from a lot of people uh, that um, I read them bedtime stories, which is kind of unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it also feels really good. It makes me feel like my work means something to people. <laughs> like, yeah, um, your work is the thing I like to fall asleep to. I'm like, okay, I, I, thank you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, actually, a lot of my favorite podcasts I listen to to help me fall asleep, and it definitely doesn't mean anything, you know, bad about the narrator. It just means that you're comfortable with them and, uh, you know, like their voice and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, all right. So I have actually a bunch of favorite things. I don't want to this, I don't want to make this all about me, but, um, I did want to mention that, uh, you know, my all time favorite video game series are Ultima, Doom and Monkey Island. And I couldn't help but notice that on tabletop, oh, cool. you had Richard Garriott and Tim Schaefer on, 
And you also narrated the audio book yeah. of David Kushner's Masters of Doom. So it seems like we might have similar yeah. video game tastes. Yeah. Yeah, those were um uh so I uh I am a huge I love Monkey Island. I love those games. Um when I started playing computer games, I had a Macintosh. And there were not a lot of games for the Macintosh. And the ones that were great and the ones that were memorable were the Mindscape point-and-click adventures, Deja Vu and, and Uninvited and those sorts of games. Uh, and, and Monkey Island and the LucasArts games felt like that to me. Um, they felt like the second or third generation of those games. Believe it or not, I never played Ultima. Um, I never played any MMO. Um, but I absolutely loved and admired Richard so much uh, that I was like, and when, when Felicia said, you know, I ran into him and he said he's a fan of tabletop. I, I was like, well, let's see if he'll come and play on the show. <laughs> like, how would you not do that? You know, like when, when one of the, one of the, one of the great uh, uh, minds of, of his generation wants to come play an utility board game show, like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and then Tim and I have known each other for so long. I couldn't even tell you where we first met. I think Maybe I worked, I worked on Brutal Legend and it may have been around that time. And then I did, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I'm blanking on the, on the name. Uh, I play a hipster, uh, a lumberjack named Curtis and I'm blanking on the name of the game. Um, but I've had the real great fortune of working with him, uh, a couple of times. Uh, Broken Age, Broken Age is the name of that game. And uh, why why couldn't you have released that 30 seconds ago, Brain? Why did you make <laughs> me stumble around like a dummy? Thanks a lot. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, that. that uh, but again, that was, it was another situation where Tim was like, "Can I come be on your show?" It was great. That was the best thing about tabletop for me. The most gratifying thing for me personally was the extraordinary number of people who I think are amazing, uh, who asked me if they could come play on my show. People I would never have the courage to ask, asked me if they could come play on my show. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Yeah, that's really cool. I was actually kind of wondering as I was watching it, how many of the guests were people who were just kind of friends of yours and how many were people that you hadn't really ever interacted with before? It's real important to me that I know the people who come and play on the show because what makes tabletop special and what makes tabletop different from some of the other extraordinary um, gameplay videos and gameplay series that are on is that our show really is about the camaraderie and the gentle competition and the fun that happens as people sit around a table to play a game together. It's less about what happens in the game. It's more about uh, the social experience. And to facilitate that, um, I need to have people I know who I am friends with, who I would want to play games with, uh, as much as possible. Every now and then I end up, um, you know, there's, we did one episode where I didn't know anybody. It's not one of my favorites, uh, cause it just felt awkward and weird. Um, and then we, we've, uh, and, and since then I've told the other producers, like, I always, I really, we really need to get people I know, mostly people I know, um, because for this particular show, you know, I can host things with people I don't know, and it's fine. But for this particular show and what this show is about, I really do need to know the players. Were there people who reached out to you that really surprised you? Where, there, where you're, you're like, oh, I wouldn't have thought you played tabletop games? The biggest surprise for me was when I worked on Supergirl and Melissa Benoist uh, ran up to me and 
basically recounted five seasons of tabletop or four <laughs> seasons of tabletop um, and uh, and told me how she and her husband play games and how much they love them. And I said, if I do more tabletop, do you want to come play on the show? And she was like, are you kidding? I could be on your show. You would choose me. You would let me do it. And I'm like, you're Supergirl. What do you mean? <laughs> I think you have the I think you have the balance of power in this relationship all wrong. <laughs> um, uh, that was very surprising to me. Um, uh, it is, uh, it's always surprising to me when, when I, when I meet people cause who, who watch the stuff, like I can see numbers, you know, I know 5 million people watched that, but there's, there's a difference between the number 5 million on the view count and actually encountering a person who, who tells me, oh, here is my personal story, um, of how your show touched my life and touched my family. And that is, it is awesome, and it is occasionally overwhelming, uh, and it blows my mind when it is someone who, like, I just think would never have any interest in anything I do. Um, and uh, that was that was one of them. Well, right. I mean, it hurts you say that you you felt like tabletop was really increasing the the visibility and popularity of tabletop games in general. I was wondering, could you, um, like, what sort of feedback do you get, or like, could you quantify like what what is it? What is sort of the the feedback you get that leads you to believe that all this, like all these people, are being brought to tabletop games from watching the show? I will tell you my favorite tabletop related story of all time. In between seasons one and two, uh, a fellow emailed me, and he said, "I wanted to thank you for making tabletop. I have four kids." And uh, they range in age from eight to, I want to say, 16, maybe 17. Every night we have dinner and then everyone kind of retreats to their own corner and everybody does their own thing. And uh, we watched an episode of Tabletop together. And then we watched another one. And now my kids want to play games with their mom and me every night. This show has brought my family together in a way that was only possible because of this show. I, uh, and he said, and I wanted to thank you for that. And I have heard that story told in its own way so many times I cannot count. And it means the world to me. Um, I knew we were making something that was going to be cool. I knew we were making something that was going to be fun. I didn't know that we were making something that was going to mean so much to people on a personal level. And I didn't know that we were making a show that was going to be part of revolutionizing tabletop gaming. Yeah, you know, my uh, my girlfriend is really into tabletop gaming and she we got Mice and Mystics uh well, it was probably like years ago at this point. And I, I've never just like a couple of times I've sat down and tried to figure out the rules. And I'm just like, oh, man, I don't I don't have time for this right now. But I saw that you have an episode on Mice and Mystics. So I thought maybe I'll maybe if I watch yeah. this, I'll, uh, you know, it'll help help me uh, get started on this game. One of the things that I hear from people a lot is I was intimidated by this game. And then I saw the tabletop episode of it and I understand it. I understand the game now 
and uh, and you taught us how to play it. And the fact that we became sort of go-to for people who uh, want to learn a game um, is something we didn't know until season three. Um, uh, around, and that was around the time that it was like, I thought, well, we got to tell editorial, like, you know, make sure that uh, <laughs> when we do things wrong, you know, everybody screws up when they play a game. Um, and, uh, and I told editorial, well, we mess up on the, on the, on the set, like you've got to put in uh, like Professor Owlbear to call mm-hmm. us out for screwing up so that people don't play the game wrong. Um, and uh, uh, her, you know, Steve Gribble was my lead editor for, for years. And uh, we lost him to the NFL, but God bless him. It's a great job for him. But, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, the guy who replaced him was terrific. Um, but Steve was amazing and, and, and really uh, is, is one of the reasons I think the show looked so great. You know, my favorite show on TV right now is The Expanse. And I saw that there's an Expanse board game that I've been wanting to try, but uh, I don't know anything about the game really. Have you, have you played that? I haven't seen it yet. Um, I have because I have been uh, I have been up to my eyeballs in writing and audiobook work uh, for much of last year. Um, I have not had very much time. Uh, this also sort of not coincidentally coincides with the the three people I gained with the most all moving away. And uh, and and I sort of lost my game group. It was like we were we were dealt a total party kill, um, <laughs> which is a giant giant bummer. Um, so instead of playing like once a week, uh, I get to play like maybe once every couple of months. I guess just the other thing I was wondering is, you know, I mentioned you know Richard Garriott and Tim Schafer were on the show. Uh, you also had some some legendary game designers like Steve Jackson and Jordan Mechter. I haven't watched all those episodes, but I was just curious, yeah. how do they do? Like, do they win or lose those those famous game designers on the on the show? So Steve came in to play Munchkin, so and Steve won Munchkin, but he won he won Munchkin by cheating, <laughs> which is incredible. He cheated and got away with it. Nobody saw it. Nobody caught it. It is in the rules of Munchkin. It is an official rule. If you cheat and get away with it, you can. That's fine. <laughs> which I think is a terrible rule. <laughs> that is an awful rule. Um, but uh, Steve Jackson says every game is a role-playing game. And in Munchkin, you are trying to just, you are, you are an adventurer who is just trying to grab loot and screw your friends and, and leave everybody else like worse than you found them. And he was like, I just, I just leaned into that. <laughs> um, I don't remember if Jordan won the game that, uh, that I played with him. Cause that was, uh, that was also all the way back in the first season. The only reason I remember Steve is, uh, is that he won by cheating, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really, really funny and entirely appropriate for that game. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that you've, you've been busy lately. And I guess like with this new show, Ready Room, you must be pretty busy with that, right? Yeah, uh, Ready Room is the after show um, that CBS is producing for Star Trek Picard. And we shoot it in blocks. We get groups of actors together, and then we tape multiple episodes in a day. Um, we've done four already. There's 10 episodes in the season. We've got, I'm doing three next week, and then the, the final three will be the week after that. Um, it is, uh, it's a, it's, I'm real proud of it. The first episode dropped today and I watched it right before I called you and I'm so proud of it. It's really fun. There are interviews with actors and creative people in front of and behind the camera. Um, and then there's a wonderful interview, uh, with Honolly Culpepper who directed the first episode of Star Trek Picard and Michael Chabon, uh, who, uh, is the showrunner for the second season. 
I mean, obviously doing this podcast, I'm just interested in the genre of geek talk shows. And it's just curious, you know, like uh-huh. looking at, you know, the Will Wheaton project and Talking Dead and all those kinds of things. Kind of what what would be some of your big takeaways that you're bringing to um, Ready Room on what makes a, a geek talk show work? What I am trying to do is perform the function of every of I want to be the person inside the room for all the nerds who are out in the audience. Because until I was in the room, I was a nerd out in the audience. And I know what I wanted to, the questions I wanted to ask, um, you know, when I was younger, back when they were like behind the scenes featurettes on DVD and stuff. Uh, I think Hardwick has done a sensational job of establishing the gold standard of after shows with Talking Dead. And uh, it is, um, he is my best friend. I leaned on him for advice and and guidance as we were uh, as 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 Ready Room was ramping up, um, and sort just like when when I'm writing and I'm doing my impression of writers, when I'm hosting, I'm doing my impression of who I imagine is the like the canonical platonic ideal of a nerd host, and that person is enthusiastic and engaged and interested in what's happening, and because I come from a world where I have a lifetime of experience as an actor, but I have also uh, been a writer for the last almost 20 years. It's really, uh, I am hopeful that the questions I am asking are a lot more interesting and, and a lot more um, insightful uh, that, that let us get into questions and topics that are a little more complex than you know, whatever your standard entertainment tonight kind of question is. I think, you know what I think? I think that, that we, we as nerds or as geeks, however you want to call us, we have a certain expectation for things. We, we love things in a real specific way. I am, I am, uh, I'm on record saying being a nerd is not about what you love. It's about the way you love it. We love things with a level of, at a, at a, at a granular level that a casual fan just doesn't. It doesn't mean that they are less of a fan than, than we are. It just means that we are experiencing this, uh, this, this fandom in a different way. And my fellow nerds who are going to tune in to watch an after show have a very particular set of expectations. I know what those expectations are because they are my expectations. So I uh, had the privilege of working very closely with the writers and producers on on Ready Room, even though it's it's not my show. I'm just a host. I'm not a producer. I'm not a not a accredited writer. Um, but I had the the privilege of working with them uh, for a few hours on our rehearsal day to shape it to reflect who I am, and I'm really happy to to share that there was very little work to do. These guys get me. Like they understand, they've seen me on panels, they've seen me uh, uh, when when I have moderated before, and they're letting me and my nerdy enthusiasm for nerd stuff. They're really letting it come through, um, and 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 that has been incredible. So, sort of, you know, my my lifelong dream has been kind of to see a a geek talk show on TV where it would interview my favorite writers, favorite uh, fantasy and science fiction authors. Do you think there's any hope that that'll ever happen, or is that too uh, too uh, niche for uh, for television? I I it's too niche for television, but it's absolutely um, uh, appropriate for 
for for internet. I mean, when I when 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 so Andy and I sat down and did a conversation about The Martian, and Audible put it on their website. It's about a 20 minute conversation that we had uh, talking about the characters and the story and our experiences as writers and our shared experiences as nerds and our shared experiences being on tabletop. And I think there is absolutely a place for that kind of conversation. And I think Audible knows, which is why they asked Andy and me to do this together. I think they get it. Um, There are some real smart, real creative people there uh, who understand that audiobooks are not a – Audiobooks are not the the B movie version of uh, of of print books. They're not the uh, they're not like an extra revenue stream uh, uh, for for a movie property. They are their own thing. Audiobooks are the way people are encountering literature and storytelling these days, and more and more and more. And there are so many people who are reading through audio now that there is geez, there's an app available that people could just log on to. Uh, and if they wanted to watch that kind of show, I, I personally think there is absolutely room for a show like that. And I think there's more people like you out there than you think. Well, and also speaking of Audible, I mean, they reached out to me to talk to you. So they obviously have good taste in podcasts. So that's another thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I thought it was funny. I saw you say in an interview that your wife is not a Star Trek fan. And I was just curious if she had, she is not. Has she has she watched at least the episodes that you're in, or 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 not? Every now and then, so a couple of nights a week, I watch the original Star Trek on MeTV, and immediately after the original Star Trek is over, they start Next Generation. They don't even show a commercial, so it is real common for me to catch the beginning of an episode of Next Generation, and most of the time, I don't need to watch it but every now and then i do and she has watched a couple with me i imagine the experience of watching next generation with me is not the best experience because i talk through the whole thing um because everything triggers a memory um but when she watches that she is watching what is effectively a childhood home movie of her husband because she's not a fan of the series however when star trek picard was about to to happen and when i got access to the episodes before they were uh officially released uh because of my work on ready room she has watched every episode with me and she is crazy about it she loves picard um in a, in a way that i did not think was possible i didn't think my wife was going to like a science fiction show the way she loves picard um and that fills me with excitement for other people who are in mixed marriages <laughs> where they are the nerd and their wife or husband is the muggle. Um, and, uh, and, and it makes me feel like this is a thing that they're going to be able to share. And I think that's really cool. You know, I just watched the first episode of Picard earlier today and I just want to highlight one detail that I really loved was at least this is how it looked to me is that the golden gate bridge has been covered with solar panels, I guess, cause they have all the flying cars and everything. Nobody drives on it anymore. I loved that too. In the second episode of of, uh, of Ready Room, Akiva and I talked about, uh, uh, sorry, Akiva Goldsman talked about uh, how much of Picard takes place on Earth um, and how much we're seeing 
an aspirational version of Earth, particularly as it uh, relates to Starfleet headquarters. And I said, I love that the Golden Gate Bridge is covered in, uh, in, in, in solar panels. And he said that that is taken from an existing Star Trek property, that that's actually canon. It's not a choice that they made. They were honoring canon when they did that, which I just thought was so freaking cool. Uh, do, do you know what, where it comes from? I can't remember for sure, and I don't want to say the wrong thing. Because if there is one thing, if there's one thing I know about my fellow nerds, it's that <laughs> we're not exactly uh, super forgiving when when we mess up something like that. Which well, is, we can do better. We can have Owlbear just come in and and correct you. So yeah, right. <laughs> Good old Professor Owlbear. <laughs> uh, so what was it like meeting Michael Shabon? I thought that was super cool that he was in the first episode. It was really exciting. That was, he was another person who I did not expect to be familiar with my work or even aware of my existence. <laughs> and he was as excited to meet me as I was to meet him. Uh, and uh, Hanalee as well. She told me that her introduction to Star Trek was The Next Generation. She grew up watching it and loved it. Um, and to know that I, I am part of, of, the, of, of the thing that, that led her to be the first female director of a Star Trek pilot. Um, that's kind of awesome. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know how, how clearly it comes through in the first episode of Ready Room, but I'm really struggling to not turn that thing into the Chris Farley show and just tell them how great they are because <laughs> um, I am such a huge fan. Um, and uh, I had probably another 18 questions on cards that I wanted to ask them that we just didn't have time for. Um, uh, you know, I could, I could talk to them forever. Uh, I, I could do, I could easily go for, for an hour with every one of the guests. They're just terrific. Was one of those questions where Michael Shabon got his shirt from? I did ask him where he got his shirt from. He said one of his kids gave it to him to wear at the, at the, at the premiere. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, for people who haven't watched it yet, he has this sort of, um, looks like, like a cowboy style black shirt with, uh, it's an incredible Adam. cowboy shirt. Yeah, like Adams. And- it's like mid-century, uh, uh, mid-century Adams and 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 shooting stars and rocket ships and junk. It's great. <laughs> I also saw that you uh, you have watched you you started watching Deep Space Nine, and uh, you're, you're it's, yeah, that's, I guess uh, that is correct. Max Temkin, who created Cards Against Humanity, has uh, a sort of recommended episode list, so you don't have to watch every single episode and. I thought that that seems like a great idea to me because I I would like to go back and watch all you know watch my way through Deep Space Nine and and having you know a list of uh, these are the um, the must hit ones uh, that would be really helpful for me. Yeah, Max's guide is great. It's on Medium. If you just search, if you just use your search engine of choice and 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 look for Max Temkin Deep Space Nine, you'll find it um, with some really wonderful illustrations of the characters that are just adorable. Um, but, uh, you know, I, as, as I wrote on my blog, I, when Deep Space Nine was in production, I was working on Next Generation and I was young and I was very jealous of them. I had a lot of sibling rivalry. I really felt like they were the new baby that mom and dad loved and, and we, we had sort of been forgotten and I just didn't want to watch the show because I was like fiercely loyal to Next Generation. And, uh, I just put it off and put it off and put it off. And then my friend Aaron Eisenberg died. And I thought, you know what? This is a really good excuse for me to honor my friend and enjoy the work that he did and, uh, and get to see the show that 
everyone I know who likes Star Trek just raves about as the best that Star Trek ever was and ever will be. Um, and uh, uh, I've been loving it. I'm, I'm, I'm nearly through the second season. And uh, and I'm I'm uh, you know I'm I'm plodding through it. It's been really fun. So is that Max Temkin episode list? Is that like the one true list for uh, for Deep Space Nine, or are there different like factions of people with their own lists for which episodes you should watch? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, what I can tell you is it's the only list I know of. Yeah, I mean, and he um, did one for Next Generation too. Yeah, because I, I definitely want to check that out because I, uh, you know, I was just when the shows were on TV, I was just absolutely terrible at catching, you know, tuning in at a particular time to watch a particular episode. So uh, and that was sure. pretty important with Deep Space Nine, especially. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do that one of these days. Yeah, You know, Deep Space Nine pioneered multiple episode story arcs in genre fiction on television. Like that exists because of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, no, everyone says it's great. So I, I and I never, I don't, you know, I never found out how it ended. So uh, I get, I definitely have to do that. Um, all right, so Will, so we're we're almost out of time here. Do you have any other um, projects that you want to mention before we go? No, I feel like we've really extensively covered a, a lot of things. Um, uh, there are a couple of projects in my pipeline that I can't talk about right now because they are NDA'd or we're still in negotiations, but it is looking like this year is going to have some really, really fun special opportunities that I'm really, really excited about. I mean, I know you did these podcasts like Radio Free Burrito and TV Crimes. Do you think you'll ever uh, return to podcasting? I don't know. It's, it's a lot for me, uh, because it's not how I make my money. It's a lot of work. And, uh, I, I often feel like nobody listens to them. Um, so it's, it, it is not a priority at the moment. Um, but Mikey Newman and I, uh, had an incredible time doing TV crimes. I would love it if everyone listening to this went and listened to our archive. There's only like a dozen episodes, uh, where we watched bad TV shows and then we put them on trial for their crimes. Uh, against humanity. Uh, it's real, it's really funny. I'm real proud of it. Um, uh, but that is something that I loved. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a DJ. I re I, I love music. I love radio. It's something that I really wanted to do. So I loved that. I really leaned into that when podcasting was new. Um, and I did it a lot, uh, for, uh, for a really long time. Um, but I, I don't have, the creative need to do it at right now. That's not to say that it will never come back, but it's just not a thing that I need to do. And I am finding my creative satisfaction and my, uh, my, my creative outlets in other places now. It's interesting that you mentioned that there's no money in podcasting. I wish someone had told me that 10 years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, there's money if you're like, if you're serial or the crooked media folks, right? <laughs> I mean, there's definitely many podcasting. It just doesn't get down to like, you know, us. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Will Wheaton. And you should all go check out his new audiobook version of The Martian over on audible.com. So, Will, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks a lot. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Will Wheaton for joining us on the show. 
And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.